Good morning. Are you doing all right today? Yeah. You ready to uh, dive into some scripture? Learn a little bit? Uh, we, next week, will be having our Christmas service. Next Sunday will be our Christmas service. We don't do a Christmas Eve service or a Christmas Day, anything like that. So next Sunday will be our more traditional Christmas service. We'll be taking communion together and hearing a brief message. So uh, please consider joining us, or if you have family in town next weekend in preparation for Christmas, uh, feel free to join us. Looking forward to that. I know with Christmas season coming, hopefully, you know, if you're like me, as, as a holiday like Christmas or Easter starts to approach, you start considering the holiday, and, and sometimes we feel obligated. I like things like some of the Advent calendars and things like that, where it kind of challenges you and reminds you, why are we celebrating these holidays that we're doing? And I think uh, year in and year out can get a little redundant, and we can sometimes lose the edge of why we're celebrating. And, um, but it's good for us to reflect and take the time and challenge ourselves and challenge our thinking, why are we celebrating Christmas? What is this all about? And, and remind ourselves of those reasons. In the last few weeks, as I've been pondering it myself, I think I maybe went a little too deep in thinking about it, but I started to ask myself the question, why Jesus? Why, why, why does God do what he does? Why did he design it the way he designed it? Why did he require Jesus to, uh, come, for God to come to earth in the flesh, the incarnation of God? And why did there have to be sacrifices? Why does there have to be a shedding of blood? Why is there consequences for sin? Why did God do what he's done in the world. And when I think about Christmas, I'm like, why Jesus? Why did Jesus come? Did he have to come? Did it have to be this way? I mean, God is God. Couldn't he just kind of snap his fingers and say, well, I, I forgive you guys. It's all good. Uh, and so I started pondering those questions. And of course, some of those things, when we ask ourselves the question, why, we end up in some uh, unhealthy places or in some mysterious places where we don't have the answer all the time uh, for why God has chosen to what he chosen to do what he's done, we sometimes come to this place where we go, because you're the potter and I'm the clay. Because you're the creator, you're the master, you're God over all things, and you choose to do what you choose to do. You're the boss. We look at John chapter 1, when John starts recording uh, his account of the gospel, and he's talking about Jesus coming into the world, and he says this, and the word became flesh. The word, the word of God became flesh flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God became flesh and he dwelt among us. Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 7 in talking about Jesus, Paul says, in speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped kind of start drawing our Trinitarian thinking of fully God and fully man out of passages like this. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. <clears throat> Sometimes throughout the week, I harass my kids about what I should talk about on Sunday. You probably would wouldn't be surprised to know how many times they've been informants on what I end up speaking about on a Sunday, but I brought it up at the dinner table the other night. What should, I, what should I preach? We actually have a joke in my house when they're like, what are you preaching about this Sunday, Dad? I always say, Jesus. And it's kind of become an ongoing joke in our house, but 
after I replied Jesus when Gracie asked me and we started talking about what I would talk about, my daughter Grace, who's 13, she goes, you ought to talk about how God made man in his image. That's a big deal. You're right, that is a big deal, very profound thought. But as I was thinking about the Christmas thing, I also recognize in the scripture where it says, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So God made us in his image, but a point in time came when God chose to do something quite profound, and he chose to become like us. He made us in his image in the beginning, but he came in our image, in the likeness of men onto the earth. What a significant and profound reality that God made a choice, a profound choice on God's part to become like one of us, and not without purpose, but significant purpose. Why Jesus? Why? Why was it that way? There's a, you know, when we ask ourselves that question, we can actually look to the words of Jesus himself. Was it necessary? Was it necessary that God come in the flesh? I mean, surely if I were the boss of the universe, I'd make it way easier and we'd all get ice cream when it's over. But I'm not God. I'm not fully just. I'm not I'm not completely just. I'm not completely loving. I'm not all-knowing, and I can't be in all places. I don't understand the mind of God fully. But Jesus himself, after he rose from the dead, there's a story in the scripture in Luke's account where we call it the road to Emmaus or the walk to Emmaus. And there's two of Jesus' disciples, we don't know who they are specifically, were walking to the town of Emmaus. And Jesus appeared and walked beside them, but they didn't know it was him. And he, they're talking about how sad they are that they thought that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was crucified in Jerusalem a few days ago. And Jesus says to them in Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Jesus himself declares to his own disciples, was it not necessary that this happen? So when we ask ourselves questions like, did it really have to be this way? Why did it have to be this way? In the mind of God and what God has done and even what Jesus says about his own suffering is that this was necessary. Even if we can't completely comprehend all of the whys, there is a lot of clues that God has given us in the Scripture about why. We've talked a lot recently when I was discussing prayer a couple weeks ago. We talk about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his death. And, he, and he's on the ground and he says, if it's possible for this cup to pass, nonetheless, not my will, but your will. Was it possible for the cup to pass? No. The will of God is that Jesus would pay the price on the cross. That's interesting. Why Jesus? I really like those bells. It's right on time. It's not possible for the cup to pass. And even as we saw in the message that Charles Spurgeon shared with, shared with us, uh, indeed he drank the cup even to its dregs. Right down to the very bottom of the cup, Jesus had to drink that cup. Why? Why Jesus? Why the sacrifice? 
Well, there's a lot of reasons why Jesus came. <clears throat> we could talk about many of them. I'm going to cover just a few of them before I go into depth on what I really want to dive into today. But when we contemplate, why did Jesus come? Well, there's a lot of, lot of reasons. He came to further reveal God to humanity. This whole story of the Scripture, the Bible itself is, an histor- is a historical account of the salvation of man. From the very beginning when, when mankind fell, all the way through the promises to Abraham, the Old Testament law, Jesus coming, this whole context of the Scripture is telling the story of the history of salvation of mankind, of God rescuing man. And Jesus, when He came, we learn a lot about the nature of God and who God really is. Our, our understanding of who God is uh, grows significantly as we read the Scripture and see God Himself demonstrating for us what it is like to be perfectly human, which He did. He came to reveal more about God to us. He came to fulfill many promises to certain people. God made promises to Adam and Eve. He made promise to Abraham. He made promises to David. We read through the prophets all of his promises to the people of God. Jesus came to fulfill a lot of promises. The time arrived where God wanted to fulfill what he had said he would do for certain people. So Jesus came and he did that. We know that's one of the reasons he came. He came to fulfill the law of Moses. Jesus himself said, Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to be the fulfillment of that law. And if you've studied the Old Testament law, there it's just rich with understanding of God and this whole process and understanding that Jesus came as the fulfillment is significant. It's a significant reason why Jesus came. And thank God that he did because we could not fulfill what was demanded in that law. Jesus came to bring in a new covenant, a new agreement. God makes agreements with man throughout history. And the Bible is the account of those agreements. And it culminates with the revelation of God himself in Christ, the new covenant. It's why we do communion. We celebrate it. And when Jesus, on that night, right before he gives up his life, and you know, we know it as the Last Supper or, or communion or the institution of the new covenant, depending on how you understand it. But during that time, Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks. And he offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of a new, of the new covenant. The new agreement between God and man. This is what the cup he was about to drink, and he's sharing this cup that symbolizes his blood that was about to be shed. Why? To the ratification of a new covenant. Covenant was in blood. It was an agreement in blood. And it was, this covenant was going to be an agreement in his blood shed on the cross, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A new agreement and a good one that we are thankful for. Jesus came to bring a new covenant, <clears throat> and we are thankful. Here's another reason. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John tells us this, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested. In other words, the Son of God was made visible. He came to the earth. 
He took on flesh that he might destroy the works of the devil. One of Jesus' purposes was to deal with his enemy and to deal with that. Jesus came to be our great high priest. I think this is a, a concept that we don't necessarily appreciate as much as maybe some other parts of the world or people that have Jewish history or understanding. But under the Old Testament, there was a high priest. He was the boss of all the priests. And he was the one who uh, once a year really went into the presence of God to offer sacrifice on behalf of the sins of all the people. Of course, that was all symbolism leading up to Christ himself. And Jesus becomes our great high priest. So to the Jewish mind, understanding the power and the significance of what it meant to be the high priest, we see that fulfilled in Jesus himself. And there's several aspects of it that are very important. The book of Hebrews really significantly is a study of all this stuff and explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest, did you know you have a great high priest? Sometimes in our context we forget and don't realize that, but we don't need another man to mediate between us and God any longer. We have Jesus Christ as the mediator of the new covenant, the one who is between man and God. He's the one we go to in order to have access to God himself. And of course, he is God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a priest, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, because of this, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So Jesus came to be the high priest of his people, the one mediating between man and God. But one of the most profound things about Jesus coming is that he suffered in the way we suffer. He was tempted in the way we've been tempted and yet was without sin. And because of that qualification, he has the right to be that high priest for all of mankind, a representative of all of us before God, those that accept him as their priest. It's a real important and profound reality of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And because of that, we then can approach God with confidence. You know, God is, God is perfect. God is ultimate. And God is love. And God is just. God is holy. He's set apart. He's other is really what holy means. He's just, we can't even... We, we use um, all types of our, of our own words, anthropomorphic language, to describe God, human ways, but really at the end of the day, He's other. He's holy. He's set apart. He's perfect. And so what would happen, because sin is in conflict with God's nature, the high priest had the potential of actually dying in the presence of God if he had not gone through the proper processes of cleansing himself before being before God. What a powerful God. That's, that his, his, he would have wrath against sin in such a way. He's very opposed to it. We're going to dive into that a little more thoroughly later. So the, you know, there was an understanding that this is a significant task, that I would go before God in the presence of God and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus himself fulfills that on our behalf with his arrival. 
Jesus came as an example. We look at his teaching and his behavior and the way he treated people and the way he laid down his life and all the things Jesus did in the short amount of time that we know about his lifetime, he demonstrates and makes himself an example to all of us in how we should live and how we should treat one another. It's a very important concept. First John chapter 2, John's talking to the people about Jesus and, and talking about abiding in him or remaining, you know, being connected and affiliated with And he's saying, whoever says that he abides in him, in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way that he walked. So we have this challenge before us to look to Jesus as our example of how to live. Jesus came as an example. So when we want to see what being a, a mankind lived out in perfection is, we look to Jesus himself. But probably... Arguably, the most significant thing, or at least the thing I want to dive into today, why did Jesus come? Why did he come to the earth? Why did God come in the flesh? He came to die for the sins of the world. Why? Why Jesus? Why did Jesus have to do that? Why did it have to be that way? Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? We all, I think, probably instantly think of the ransom note, the kidnapping and the payment that needs to be made in order to receive back someone. There's a price that has to be paid in order to get it. Jesus was the ransom for many. He, was the, he paid the price. He came for this purpose of paying a ransom for us. Well, wait a minute. What were we captive by? Why did we need to be ransomed? What's going on? What is the dynamic? Why does it have to be that severe? Why is it that significant? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So we use, even today, we use the word reconciliation. Thank you, Joel. Well, when we have a broken relationship, what do we do? We seek to reconcile, to make things even, to get back on the same page, to restore that relationship. Or how many of you reconcile your bank account like good little financial managers every month? No one? All right, we, I know what my message will be next week. I'm just kidding. We reconcile our account. We double check and make sure that things balance out, that they match, that there isn't a discrepancy. Well, there's a discrepancy between man and God, a brokenness in relationship that needs to be reconciled. And we know that Jesus came to Work out that reconciliation. It says here, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is a purpose behind Jesus' coming that this reconciliation take place, not imputing their trespasses to them or counting our sins against us, and has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation, something now that we have. He made he, being God, made him, being Jesus, sin for us. Just let that sink in. God absorbed and made himself in the flesh sin for us. 
He put that on him, that sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. We become the righteousness of God in Christ. In Christ, we can't be righteous with sin. Sin is in our lives and it corrupts, wholly corrupts. But Jesus took that on himself as the ransom, the payment, that we could be reconciled and that we can be made righteous. Okay, so why this price to pay? Why, why is it this way? I want to talk about the wrath of God. What is wrath? Well, wrath is not generally something we would use in a positive context. It is something to be um, grateful for when we're talking about God, but not necessarily always in our case. So when I talk about wrath, um, I can imagine myself being wrathful, and it's not a positive thing. I lose my temper, and my wrath spills out everywhere, and things get destroyed, and people get hurt. We aren't perfect like God. God is very capable of anger and is angry about things. What is anger, anyway? What is it when we feel anger? You know, we're very selfish, and so we often are angry for selfish reasons, reasons, but in a right way, anger is our reaction to injustice. When we see somebody being bullied on the playground, what rises in us? Something's wrong. There's an injustice taking place. There's an anger inside that this isn't right, and I need to do something about it. That's a healthy, right sense of the word anger. There are other things like that. Well, God in His perfection and ultimate righteousness can be angry and not sin. He can't do that. It's contrary to His nature. And yet He is right in being angry. If I catch my kid lying to me, I think the parenting thing is probably one of the best examples we can come up with. If I catch my kid lying to me, is it right that I discipline them? I recognize the injustice. I don't like it. It's anger on some level. Now, I could let my anger get out of hand and also be unjust myself and do something wrong. But in my recognition of the injustice, I have to take action. It's right. It is right for me to discipline my children. It is right for us to do so. Now, we're not perfect. We screw up that process all the time. And we, if we went around the room and surveyed everybody, we'd all be on little different ends of the spectrum about how we should discipline kids and how that process should work. But at the end of the day, what we are doing is bringing correction in one way, shape, or form or the other because something's wrong. And God is just, He's the definition of it. He's the standard of it. So what happens when mankind chooses to rebel against God, because that's what we do. You know, we, we understand from the Scriptures that Satan himself rebelled against God and he was cast out of heaven. And actually, God had no mercy in their situation. The Scripture tells us that He cast them into eternal darkness, into nether gloom to await the day of judgment. We don't see any mercy on their behalf. And yet, God, despite our choice to ally ourselves with that same rebellion, has chosen to have mercy upon us. I think when it comes to celebrating Christmas and Easter and God in general, we have to stop and realize He did not have to. ever think about that? When Adam and Eve sinned, why didn't he just push the self-destruct button and end it all? Why would God do what he's done? I don't understand. 
And in a lot of ways, we don't understand, and we won't probably for a long time understand what He has done and why He's done it. And yet, for whatever reason, in that moment in time when man rebelled against God, God began to make a way for man to be reconciled to Himself. It's important. He did not have to. He chose to. Out of His perfect nature and character for His own reasons, He chose to embark on an adventure with mankind that mankind has not earned nor deserves. Now, that's a painful reality. But God, in His righteousness and His justice and His perfect love, all of those things begin to make a way. We see the wrath in the creation story. Now, God in His wrath, uh, wrath ultimately really means that God intensely hates sin. It is in conflict with His nature. It is absolutely contrary to Him. That's really what the wrath of God is. And so when mankind, giving mankind the, the ability to make a decision or a choice, we choose between the nature of God and other. Sin isn't, even, isn't self-existent. It only exists as a forfeit of what is. Something to think about. We see it in creation when man disobeys, the wrath of God commences, and he begins with this. Mankind has become like one of us, knowing good from evil, kicks him out of the garden. Eternal life is no longer man's. There's a consequence for his actions, and God is just in doing so. This is where we start to wrestle, because we sometimes feel like we're a better judge than God. And when God decided to kick Adam and Eve out, it's like, I'm not sure I would have done that, God. I think that I could have had a little more mercy than that, like... Wow, that's kind of harsh. And yet God in His perfection and His justice is more just and more perfect and more loving than you could ever be. And when we take that position, we make ourselves God. If my justice is better than God's justice, He's not God. Think about that. It's actually an issue in the world of philosophy, not even necessarily to do with faith, just philosophy in general, where they get hung up in this thing, and sometimes it's not helpful to <laughs> dive too far into this stuff. But the, the, the thought is, or the idea is, that if I can imagine something better or greater than God, it's not God. If I can imagine that my justice is a better idea than God's justice, He's not a God worthy of being worshipped. That's not the God we serve. His justice is perfect. His love is perfect. If my perception of His justice is that it's wrong, then I'm not believing correctly about God. He is God. I am not. So if I can imagine that God is more loving than He is, then I don't have the right perception of God because He is perfect in His love. Now, my estimation of perfection in His might be different. Like I said, if, if I were in charge, we'd all get ice cream and go home. Why? Because I, I look around here and I go, I'm a good guy. I do the right thing most of the time. You guys are pretty good people yourselves. What are we basing that on? There's a message in the world out there that you just, just be a good person, God's going to be cool. That's not true. God is perfect in who He is, and we don't even come close. And not that He even expects that of us. But we look at one another and go, 
well, I'm doing a little better than Ethan can. I'm going to get to heaven, right? Ethan's a little offended at me right now. I'm pretty sure God still loves you, Ethan. You know, we're, we're, we look at one another and we go, I'm doing okay. God's got to be okay with me. I'm, when I compare to everybody else and I use my own type of judgment, I think we're pretty good. I, here's a dangerous thought, and I, I'm confident many of you have thought it and not wanted to speak it out loud, because I have. I had this thought, I was like, am I more merciful than God that I would have mercy on you and he wouldn't? Not possible. I might think that, and I might wrestle with that thought, because in my logic and my reality, if I would give you ice cream and God's going to be the judge of everybody, doesn't that make me more merciful than God? No, you're not just then, Jared. This isn't justice to just not punish. We don't like punishment, but punishment is really about God's wrath against what he hates, everything that's in contrast to his nature, sin. God's wrath is upon mankind. We see it in the creation when they're kicked out of the garden. We see the cursing of man and the creation. And God is just in doing so. It is his nature. He wasn't unjust in making that decision. We have to come to resolution with that fact. And it's hard. We see it often in the Old Testament and the stories. I mean, if you're familiar with the Old Testament stories and you read what the Israelites did over and over and over and over and over, and you're like, ah, what are you doing? You know, when God gives the Ten Commandments, it took them about 15 minutes to build a gold idol and start worshiping it in absolute contrast to what God was initiating and teaching them. God got a little frustrated, and rightfully so. He's just in His anger. He's just in His punishment. He's just in His mercy. He's just in His love. He's the whole of all of those in perfection intertwined. We compartmentalize those things and think things like, in order for me to have mercy, I can't have justice. Or in order for me to show love, I can't punish. And we compartmentalize in those ways, but not God. He's perfect in those things together simultaneously. And it's hard to grasp, but yet something we have to wrestle with. God says to Moses, Exodus chapter 32, I've seen this people and behold... Look at them. It is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. God said that? God did that? Yes. God is just in his wrath because mankind is rebellious and we fail to recognize the severity of sin. I think it's one of the dangers that we walk in all the time. We take sin lightly. God hates sin. We have to have grace. We're weak and broken. We have to overlook offenses. Thank God that he made a way that we can that that we can do so and we need to. But for us to treat sin as flippant and unimportant is tragically contradictory to the very nature of the God who's reconciling us to himself, wanting us to grow like him and be like him. So sin is a very serious thing, so serious that it required death. It's kind of hard to grasp, and I don't, probably won't dive too deeply into it, but in God gave life, and he gave commands, and we rejected the commands, and therefore rejected the life. The shedding of blood 
is the consequence for sin. That's what real justice is. According to the Scripture, death is the only just penalty for rebellion against the one who gave life. That's hard to get around, get your head around. But it's true. How do I know it's true? Because God himself came and shed his blood and died to pay that for us. If it didn't have to be that way, it would not have been. And yet the shedding of blood was the only proper consequence for the wrath of God. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of himself on the cross on your behalf. That wrath that we ought to fear and be concerned about We'd no longer have to be because our faith is in a sacrifice that took that wrath for us on the cross. Wrath isn't just an Old Testament concept, as is commonly misunderstood. There are many, many scriptures in the New Testament talking about wrath. Jesus himself, whoever believes in the Son, this is John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. My God's justice causes him to push back against sin and that there be punishment and just punishment for sin. The wrath is upon creation. But because, this is Romans chapter 2, Paul writing, but because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, something that very unpopular because Americans don't like negative things. But a major, why do we say being saved? Why do, we, why do we talk about the gospel with the idea that we need to be saved? If we don't need to be saved from something, then what's the issue? No, we need to be saved. What are we being saved from? Justice. Not just negative punishment. It's very negative. It's a very negative thing for us. But it's just. Are you with me? This stuff's kind of it's kind of hard. But it's very, very, very important to understand that there will be a day when the wrath of God will be fulfilled upon the earth. The Bible calls it the great and dreadful day of the Lord both great and dreadful. There will be a lot of weeping. It will not be positive. The Scripture is very clear about that. Because why? We're facing what's due us for our rebellion against God. God hates sin, and He will ultimately deal with it with finality in the end. So what is He saying? You're storing up wrath for yourself by hardening your heart and rebelling against God. God will repay each one according to his deeds. Those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Yea, there will be a benefit for what God has done. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow wickedness, there will be wrath and anger. This is not Old Testament law. This is the gospel. This is, we have to understand that the reason this is such good news is the alternative is bad news. <laughs> There's really bad news, but there's really good news. The gospel, the wrath of God has been bore on the cross by Jesus Christ himself, and he has paid that penalty for me. I will accept that gift. Thank you, Lord. I believe that story. I accept 
that sacrifice that you are the king of all kings. You are the high priest. You are the one who bore the wrath. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's celebrate Christmas because it's so worth it. It's so important. I think my answer to the question, why Jesus, is two attributes of God. Why Jesus? Love and justice. Why Jesus? Because of love and justice. Why did it happen this way? Because of love and justice together. John 3, 16. We all know. What's the motive of God? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. What motivated God to do such a tremendous thing on behalf of the creation that rebels against him because he loves. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish because of the wrath of God, because of sin, there is perishing. But they will not perish because he gave his son, because he loved the world, whoever will believe, and then will inherit eternal life rather than death, which is the ultimate punishment of sin. What good news. (laughs) What good news. We wouldn't need good news if there weren't a need. We wouldn't need saved if there weren't something to be saved from. But we want to be saved, and we want to help others. Come to this knowledge of Jesus Christ that that wrath upon us because of sin might be bore through Jesus' sacrifice. I think that when I answer the question, why Jesus, I can say because of love and because of justice. Because God had to be just. He can't let it slide or he wouldn't be just. If I continually let my child get away with lying and cheating and stealing, am I just as a parent? Now, we need to remember God is slow to anger and rich in love. He's not hot-tempered like a sinful human, but his anger is just. And But we, I think that example plays out well. Am I just? Can you call me a just parent if I just let my child do as they wish? without bringing discipline, without bringing correction, without teaching them right and wrong. No, it's not just. That very, we're made in the image of God, there's a sense of us about justice. There's a sense in us about love. There's a sense that we all have about good things. Why? We were made in the image of God, and He's the perfect example of those things. Righteousness and justice are the same thing. Righteousness and justice are two different words in the English. But in the Greek and the Hebrew both, they're basically the same word, same root, very slightly different. The righteous, righteousness and justice, you know, doing the right thing is just, or justice would be making right what was wronged, those kinds of things. They're very closely related. When I think of the word righteousness, I often think of snobbery and self-righteousness. But righteous is a very, very good word. If someone is a righteous person, they are just they're good. They operate in the right. Righteous. Righteous. They operate in a right way. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Wow. Okay. What do we say to all this? What, what shall separate us from the love of God? that God has done this for us? What can we say but be in awe and thankful and amazed that God chose in his perfection to do a most profound thing that through it we could see how glorious and perfect he is? Not only, we, not only are we free now from the wrath of God and the, conse- the ultimate consequences of sin, 
because of Jesus Christ, we also now, we gain eternal life. We will live in eternity with him. We will have a new body like his glorious body. Though we couldn't earn it in and of ourselves. Not only that, we can approach that throne of grace now. We can go into the presence of God like only the high priest used to be able to. Now we can go because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Because he's the priest now. We can go into the presence of God to receive what we need from the God and creator of the universe. That that access was bought for us. It's called atonement. There was a bearing of the wrath, the atonement for sin. Jesus did that for us. Should we celebrate Christmas? Should we celebrate that that God came in the flesh, that he's Jesus Christ, and bore his own wrath on his son on the cross? I think we should celebrate. It is the right response. A relationship has been restored that you now have access to that once was broken. Once you were lost, now you were found. You're the prodigal who has come home to the Father. Why? Because the wrath of the Father was born on the cross by Jesus Christ. Repo- uh, uh, Romans 5, 9 through 11 probably says it best. Therefore, since we have been justified justified, justice. Therefore, since we've gotten justice, not because we are just, but because he is just, we've been justified like we went before the judge. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from wrath through him? For if we were enemies, if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only that, but we also rejoice. We rejoice. What's the proper response to all this? Even the wrath of God and the understanding of the the magnificence and and the the dreadful wrath of God. Scripture is clear. It's a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the Almighty God. Why? Because he can, Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill the body. Fear the one that can destroy the soul. Who is that? God. Yet we can rejoice. Rejoice. That's our proper response at Christmas. That's how we celebrate. We rejoice what has been done for us. In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received a reconciliation. That account of wrath and brokenness and punishment Ah, we've been reconciled. We can be before God. Would you stand, please? I know that, you know, we talk about the wrath of God, and it can be hard to reconcile an understanding of things like anger and justice. And, and if God, you know, but it's important to remember that God is perfect in all those things. And that he's beyond even our understanding of that. And, and the scripture is full of great instruction about that. So I hope you're stirred. I hope you're a little provoked. But I really hope that you ponder these things in your heart. That you dig into the scripture yourself and see how, how, what is the wrath of God? How much does this actually happen? Is God really just? Does he really love? I mean, wow, those are some tough stuff sometimes to understand. But I would challenge you, wrestle with it. Because he is love. He is just. And we should rejoice for what he's done. Lord, we come before you today thankful.
Very thankful. Very thankful that in the creation before I or any one of us was ever born, when you had the choice to just forget it, I'm not going to deal with the rebellious mankind, their pain, yet you chose to demonstrate a much greater understanding of your love and your perfection through this whole mankind narrative. And Father, I pray that these words, the scripture today, would be sown in each one of our hearts, Lord, and that it would produce fruit, that people would be encouraged and strengthened, but also revere and praise you for who you are and bring the glory that's really due to you. You are no small God with imperfections. You are a great God, far above all of us. We praise you and we thank you, and I pray that you would encourage each heart and mind here today, Lord, as we rejoice what you've done, I pray that you would also be challenging us to grow in our maturity, to grow in our relationship with you, to grow in the understanding of the magnificence of what you've done on our behalf. I pray that you bless each one. In Jesus' name, amen.